Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. Today we're going to do something a little different. I'm actually joined in the studio today by the producer of the show, Mr. David Lally. David, how are you? Grand, Brian. Thanks. David is, uh, as you can probably tell, is from Galway in Ireland and has worked for me for how long now, Dave? Almost 14 years. 14 years. If you'd have killed somebody, you'd have been out in 10, you know. (laughs) David's actually also a member of the band Brogue Wave that plays our theme song, along with a couple of other famous musicians you've cobbled together. I love that music. But today we're going to do something a little different. We're actually going to take you to a live event where I told one of my all-time favorite stories, a real funny story, but that has a real profound twist to it. And this broadcast is going out during the time of Augusta, the Masters. And this story is set in Augusta, Georgia. Lou Holtz invited me to go play golf there. But there's a bit of a backstory to it that the story at the event uh, really doesn't tell. Lou and I became pals. I first heard him speak in 1986, and it just blew me away. We recently did a podcast interview with him from a live show. Can I trust you? Are you good at what you do? And do you care about me? And I took those three principles and applied them into my business life and really, really solidified my success in business around those three principles. So years later, when I'm putting on events and doing seminars and traveling around, as you've traveled with me, Dave, I had a chance to invite Lou to come and speak. I think the first time he spoke at an event of mine might have been 2002. And we started connecting. And, you know, Dave, what happens is a lot of people don't realize that Lou Holtz made his money being a public speaker. You know, when he was coaching at Notre Dame, there was in the charter at Notre Dame that nobody could make more money than the dean of the school. And the dean of the school was a priest who taken a vow of poverty. So, so Lou's like, hey, I'm the head coach at Notre Dame. And they've changed it since then. Mm. But he made his money by public speaking. And Lou became a phenomenal public speaker. And he's been on Johnny Carson almost more than any other person in history. I mean, he did the whole circuit with Bob Hope. and So he was a very well-known guy and a very entertaining guy. And he liked my style of speaking. And, of course, the coach of the Notre Dame fighting Irish, he liked the fact that I was Irish. And then we connected around golf. So what happened was Lou spoke at, oh, maybe two dozen events that I put on over a course about a five-year period of time. And we just became friends and struck up a relationship and... He was the one who influenced my son, AJ, to become a Division One football player. You know, he was having dinner with us as the family, and AJ really loved basketball. And Lou goes to him, hey, how many six-foot guys are there in the NBA? And AJ goes, not many. He goes, there's a lot of six-foot guys complaining in the NFL. And that was really what pushed AJ to become a college football player. So good friends, good connection, good relationship. Well, in 2007... I was out in Chicago with the family. We actually went down to Indiana to watch Notre Dame play USC. And on our way back home, we get in at like, I don't know, one in the morning. Anyway, there were wildfires in Southern California. And we get a call down at the security gate. Hey, we want you out now. We left our home in the middle of the night with six young kids and with the shirts on our back and our house burned down. And everything was in it was lost and whatever. So... Lou just felt terrible about this, and he reached out to me, a very compassionate guy, 
and said, look, I know that growing up your family played golf. And I know your dad's a house painter, but he's been a member of a golf club for 50 years. We had talked extensively about my love for Augusta. I was allowed two days off school every year. And it was the Thursday and Friday of the Masters was mum and dad allowed, you know. And so he said, I know you've always wanted to come to Augusta. I'd love to have you. But he says, I would love you to bring your dad and you can bring your brother Dermot. And Dermot, as you know, is the CEO of the company. Right. So as much as I appreciated the offer and Lou kept sending me emails, come on out. I was like, when your house burns down, you're just your life's upside down. And so what happens and what you'll hear in this live story is I get a chance to fly my dad out. My brother Dermot and I fly. We stay at Augusta, stay on property in one of the cabins. Played 36 holes of golf and the par three. Had dinner the night before. Met all these dignitaries. Unbelievable experience, especially for my dad, you know. But ultimately, an experience happens at this golf course. That It's a funny story because, obviously, I hadn't played golf since the fire. I didn't have any clubs. I ended up buying clubs at Walmart, and it was a bit of a show. And Augusta is like this magnificent place. It's the hardest ticket in sport. Uh, I just heard Jack Nicholas yesterday being interviewed, and he said it was his 54th time being there. Now, when he says 54 times, he's been there for a week. And this is a man who's built over 100 golf courses, and he's like, it's just breathtaking. And it's a breathtaking place. And it's, it's almost surreal how beautiful it is. And they have a fabulous culture there, much different than what people think. It's behind the scenes. It's a fabulous place. And, you know, one of the things that's actually struck me about the place was, you know, here it's in the deep south and whatever else. And many people think it's this very elitist thing because not everybody can join us and so on and so forth. One of the things that struck me was here's all these staff and African-Americans and Mexicans and every race and you can see. And they're just giving the needle to the members. They don't care, you know, and it's just there's that kind of relationship there. Beautiful place. Great honor. Great respect. So we had the chance of a lifetime to fly out to be with Lou to be with my dad and my brother Dermot. Uh, but things didn't work out the way I had planned, and I ended up having an experience. It's a great story. It's one of my favorite funny stories I tell, but it also has a profound twist to it because it turned out to be a bit of a life changer to some degree. And so I hope folks enjoy listening to this. I hope it brings a smile to your face, and maybe we can chat a little bit afterwards about just some principles that might apply to whoever listens to it. So let's take a listen to the story at uh, going to play golf with Lou Holtz and Augusta. Now, I used to be a pretty good golfer. As the kids got busier and life got busier, I went from being on one handicap to like a whatever and playing twice a year. So Lou's after me all the time, and I finally said, okay, let's do it. Let me just put it on the calendar. I know this. Let's do it. Let's do it two weeks before the tournament. Good. I'll bring my dad out from Ireland. Yeah, yeah, I'll be great. Well, in the meantime, life goes on, and I'm still catching up post-fire. My golf clubs were in my Mercedes that burned to the ground. I don't have a set of golf clubs. Dermot says, hey, man, we've got to go golfing. We've got to go practice. We've got to go this. I go, Dermot, I'm up to my eyeball. So here it is. It's now two days before we go. I have not hit a golf ball in two years. I do not own a set of golf clubs. Dermot calls me, what are you going to do? Whatever else. Okay. And literally, this is true as I'm standing here. I go to Walmart <laughs> at 11 o'clock at night and buy a set of golf clubs. For those of you who don't know golf, that might not be the premier place to get them. <laughs> And Dermot's like, what are you going to do? We're about to play the hardest golf course in the world. And you haven't hit a golf ball in two years. And you haven't practiced. You haven't even done. I said, here's my plan. I'm going to cram. I used to do this in college. 
So we get to the golf course. I said, I'm going to get up the following morning. I'm going to beat the balls for about two hours. I'm going to find a little something to work with, and I'll ride that all day. So we're there. Bring my dad. Now, you've got to understand, we're sitting in Augusta. We're in the restaurant. Well, look, I'm a, I'm a real estate training guy. I'm here. Here's the president of ExxonMobil. Here's the head of American Express and all these different characters, the owners of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and here's my dad. And my dad looks at me and goes, that I'm the first house painter that you ever had inside here. <laughs> so we're spending the night in the cabin with Lou. Lou's smoking the pipe. He comes in, and Lou is wrapped tight, and he's ready to go. And he flies open the door. He says, all right, man. Breakfast at 7, teeing off at 7.30. Mm. I go, what time's the driving range open, Lou? 7.30. So I'm like, oh, now I'm really sweating it. So now I realize I'm really going to hack. So I start working on my stories. <laughs> so this is true as I'm standing here. We're on the first tee at Augusta. You get your own caddy. He's got the white overalls on, the green cap on, and they have your name on the back. This happened. I'm on the first tee. The caddy pulls off the head cover. There is plastic on the head cover. He takes out a tee, and he looks at me. He takes out a tee, snaps it, takes off the plastic, takes the price tag. And he hands me the club. And I know what he's thinking. He's like, I'm wearing this schmuck's name on my back. Charlie freaking Walmart. I got 36 holes of this. So I get up, I put the ball down, I take a couple of practice swings, and I stand up and I just hit this laser. 280 yards straight left. <laughs> Into the middle of the freaking trees. Oh my God. We started on the 10th hole. And 10th hole's tree line, wherever. I'm in the woods. I'm like, okay, give me a two iron. He takes out the two iron, takes the label off. And there's a gap in the trees about six feet wide. And I'm like, I can do this. I can do this, even though I haven't practiced and prepared. And I'm going to hit a two iron. And I'm going to hook it about 60 yards around the trees. And I wham it. Only it doesn't hook. And, and I said something that rhymed with that. And the ball goes boom. All the way across the fairway. Way over into this clump of trees. And the caddy is walking ahead. And he's chewing tobacco like this. And he's walking like this. He finds the ball. He's standing there. I come on over. He goes, Miss Buffini, I'm caddying here 25 years. I ain't never even seen this part of the golf course. <laughs> so now I'm embarrassed. So I hack out, jack up. I get on the green for six. I make like a 30-foot putt for a seven at a par four. Well, between that and the next tee, I'm making all these jokes. Oh, my God, I haven't done this. He's peeling the things off, and you got to see this, Lou, and this and that and the other. Oh, my God, I haven't hit a ball in two years. Oh, my God, I used to be great when the kids were small. And I'm doing all this, and I'm, and I'm embarrassed. But I'm doing it, and I'm telling the stories, and I'm good at telling stories. So we're getting under the tee. Getting under the tee. Lou's just walking the whole time, and he spins on me, and his pipe comes this far from my nose. He takes out the pipe, and he looks at me in the eye. He goes, did you come here to play golf? or to make excuses. Now I'm Irish. I'm pissed. My brother Dermot's there, and he's known what I've gone through. He's double pissed, and he says, he comes to me, I don't care. You hold him, I'll hit him, i tell you right now. We've been thrown out of better places than this, let's go. 
But now here's what happened. He got in my face and now I gave him my best excuses and now I'm stripped naked. I don't feel like I have any game. I got no confidence whatsoever and he just took away my excuses. And now I'm standing there on the 11th tee of what's called Amen Corner. 11, 12, 13. It's Amen Corner because you're supposed to say your prayers going around it. And I stand up and I manage to kind of fish hook this ball down the fairway. And I take out a wood and I kind of slob on it down onto the green. And I manage to get up and down and I make a par. Because I'm grinding my lights out because I'm embarrassed. I get up on the 12th. It's the hardest hole in golf. And I manage to get it near the green and chip it up and make a putt. I get to the 13th. I put it on the fairway. I put it on the green. I make a birdie. Now I'm one under par around Amen Corner. I birdie 15. I birdie 17. Lou Holtz didn't say a freaking word to me. We go in for a little snack because we just played the back nine. And he's sitting down next to me. And he hadn't said a word in eight holes. And he looks at me and he smiles. He goes, isn't it nice to come to a place like this and play well? I shot in the 70s that day and I remember it. But what I really remember is being coached. And what I really remember is being stripped away of my excuses. And when he stripped away my excuses, I came to the place, I just got to do my best, whatever the hell that is. And I'm going to get away from the stories, I'm going to get away from the excuses, I'm exposed, I got nowhere to go. And I played 36 holes that day, and then we went and played the part three. And for me and my dad and my brother, it was one of the most memorable days ever. And Lou Holtz has told me repeatedly, and his best friends have told me repeatedly, that was his favorite day he ever had at Augusta. Because, by the way, it's very rewarding to coach somebody up. He brought me out there because he wanted to impact my spirits. He knew I'd been through a hell and back. And my excuses were stopping that from happening. So he stripped away my excuses. He loved me enough to do the hard thing and made me better than what I was setting myself up to be. So I don't have now, years from now, a story of that I'm really embarrassed about how I hacked around. I went to Augusta, but it kind of sucked. I have in my heart a memory I have of myself, my dad, and him for the rest of my life. You see, a coach can pull more out of you than you can pull out of yourself. Man, bro, you paint a picture like nobody else. That is the truth. I've been listening to you for 15 years tell stories. But the truth of it is, you do an absolutely incredible job of taking a funny illustration like that. But you still make the lesson stick really hard. Where does that come from? Where does that skill come from? I don't know. I mean, we know in Ireland there's... uh ancient tradition of the Shanna Keys, right? So that everybody had a storyteller in their town. And I think for us, you know, we didn't have, I think we had two television channels growing up, right? Maybe four in the 80s. Right. So we sat around and tell stories. And in the culture at home, you know, my wife doesn't drink, but when she comes to Ireland, you know, we sit in a pub and people tell stories. And so you tell stories for entertainment. Uh, Today, you know, my mission is to impact and improve the lives of people. So I tell the stories for entertainment purpose, but I also like to be very transparent with people. And I find people have a hard time maybe relating to your success, but they can certainly identify with your struggle. And that particular story, I think, is very, very powerful because, you know, the tables got turned to me to some degree. You know, Lou is a wise man. You know, he was 75 years of age. We're out in a golf course. Right. He's lived a lot of life. He's coached a lot of people. And he did want to, you know, encourage me and lift my spirits and and he was insistent on that and you know he just forced me to get rid of the excuses which when you're a storyteller you're very good at making excuses perhaps and uh, 
he took away the excuses and then put me in a spot where whatever my best was that day, he got the best out of me. And I think at the end of the day, that's what a great coach does. He got the best out of me that day. You know, I've met some of his players. I've had a chance to interact with some of these guys. And they all say the same thing. He got the best out of me. And that's what happened for me that day. And to be honest with you, that's what I've been trying to do ever since with other people mm-hmm. is get the best out of them, you know? Right. I, it's almost like we got the inside scoop on what it was really like to get coached by the, the legendary coach mm-hmm. all along, something yeah. most people never get to see. Yeah. So it's cool to hear. What was your favorite thing about the coach? What surprised you about him? Like, again, I've known him for years. When he got out on the golf course, you know, this, one of the things about golf, it's a great sport because whatever's inside a person's going to come out on a golf course, you know? If a person's a little dodgy, they'll cheat on their scores. They, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. If a person's, you know, short fuse, that's coming out. Uh-huh. Great stuff, too. But I knew, you know, Lou Holtz took over six losing teams and turned them into six winning teams. But I didn't understand the degree of his competitiveness. Like, once he had me going, he rode me because now I was playing really well. So we're playing my dad and Dermot, and we're beating them. We're playing a match. And, like, we're up four holes, you know, and he turns to me on the on the start of the back nine and goes, let's beat him bad. Nice. I'm like, we're already beating him bad, you know. <laughs> so, but very, very competitive. So that was the thing that surprised me. What I love about him is who he is and how he keeps things in perspective. Mm. You know, he's been there and done that with whoever else, presidents and potentates. He's played golf with them all and he's revered by them all. You know, it's interesting Recently, I've had a chance to kind of turn the tables. I was talking to you about this before. You know, Lou's house got struck by lightning here just a couple months ago. Right. In the middle of the night and went on fire. And it wasn't a complete loss, but basically the house is a loss. And so I've been reaching out to him and encouraging him. I, I know some things that were very precious to him. And I was able to actually go and get a few things and send it to him. And Anyway, he was just said, I, I'm going to share with you a, a little part of a long email he sent me. You know, there's a lot of private stuff in here, but this is not. But he goes, the, the fire was devastating. We lost almost everything, but we're not discouraged. We will rebuild, but it is challenging. He says, the alarm woke us at 2.30 in the morning and allowed me and Beth, his bride, to escape, you know. And he goes, a rich man is not the one who has the most, but the one who needs the least. We have learn to count our blessings we'll be okay because we have so many friends like you and we also have some resources to handle this i actually feel sorry for people who've lost their home to a flood or a tornado or a hurricane and are not as blessed as we are Uh, so there he is thinking about other people and then he says we lost so much valuable memorabilia that can't be replaced and i started thinking about that and i mean i know some of the stuff he had but he goes but we didn't lose anything we cannot take to heaven and he goes please remember us in your prayers and then he goes on the bottom line, that, that's who the guy is. And I, I share that to give people a little insight that here's a guy that's achieved at extraordinary levels, but the character is strong mm-hmm. and it's there. And, you know, they say tough times reveal your character. They don't make your character. Mm-hmm. But he, he's the real deal. So he's the real deal in intensity and competitiveness. He's the real deal in regards to character, but he's also the real deal in regards to just a real zest for life. I came away from that encounter with him First of all, being aware of my own, I was not aware that I was much of an excuse maker. I mean, you know me a long time. Mm. I certainly wouldn't be perceived as a victim no. or ever in anything. No. And in, in, I've had a lot of crazy things happen in life. But I was realized after that, I was like, you know what? I have a few more excuses than I thought I did. And I got to see what happens when the excuses were taken away. 
And that's why I wanted to share this story with people at a live event. That's why I want to have this as part of a, a kind of a little bonus podcast is the folks listening. What would their life look like if they really did take away some of the excuses? Right. That's the thing to think about. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic story. It's funny. It packs a punch, though. I mean, it seriously right. packs a punch. And a thing I love that you do, which is you're not afraid to be transparent and vulnerable in front of people, which is scary. It's pretty terrifying for people. <laughs> so you got coached by a coach, and it, it didn't just stay on the golf course. You actually shared it with, mm. I mean, now thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. What is it about being coached? Why is it that other people can see what's so hard to see about ourselves? All right. Well, obviously, we know a bit about this, right? We've been coaching people for over 20 years as a company, thousands of folks. I think two things. I think it's hard for us to see our shortcomings, and it's hard for us to see our gifts. Right. You know? And sometimes it's an image we've created of ourselves and so on and so forth. But the real gifts we have are so natural to us, we don't actually think there's anything special. And when we don't recognize the gifts we have, we actually don't understand our own value. And there's just so much to that. And I, I'm sure we'll do stuff on that in the future. But I think the other part of it is, maybe I'll, I'll tell a story, right? Because that's what I do. You know, back in the early days of our seminars, when, when we weren't in big convention centers with thousands and thousands of people, let's say you have five or 600 people in a seminar like we did back in our, when we started. Well, to keep people on track, I used to play James Brown's I Feel Good. And when the music was ending, people had to run in and get in their chair. And if you remember the story, oh, if they, I've, right? I've heard it a few times. Yeah, well, <laughs> if people weren't sitting in their chair, some of the staff would grab them, bring them up on stage, yeah. and they'd have to sing the chorus of that in front of the live audience. So people over time got the hang of this thing and, and didn't really want to be singing. And there used to be like little pandemonium in the women's bathrooms, you know? So I'm in Seattle, I'll never forget this. And there's a woman, the song is playing, I'm on stage, it's almost getting ready to start again. And as a woman comes out from a side door and she's like running across, she's in a pair of heels and a skirt and she's sprinting across because she doesn't want to be brought up to sing the song. But she gets in front of me, right in front of me on her way to her seat on my far right. She realized there's a little more left to the song. She's heard this before. She's been to the event a few times mm. and she gets a little cocky and she gets in front of me. She looks up at me and goes, you're not going to make me sing. <laughs> and as she gets past me, I notice that her pantyhose are stuck in the top of her skirt. No. And I got the cameras on and everything. Else. And so she was sprinting because she didn't want to be embarrassed by singing. But camera two is, <laughs> oh, no. you know, zooming in on her backside here. And I, I remember thinking about it. And again, a, a funny story for a profound point is none of us can see our own shortcomings. Mm. And when she walked out of the bathroom and looked in the mirror, everything looks fine. But to some degree, we all have our pantyhose stuck in our skirt. And, and, we all need somebody. You know, we all need some help. Right. You know, they sing King Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And he had a quote that said, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And that really is the key with whether it's coaching, mentoring, accountability, you know, a good friend, mm. whatever it is. We all need somebody. And... In my case, I needed a lot of somebodies, and I still do to this day, you know? That's why I'm here to have you produce the show, Bray. Ah, yeah, no problem, <laughs> no problem. Well, listen, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. It's a little different, but again, funny stories, some good insights, and maybe something that might just have a nugget for you that might help you today. Maybe get rid of some of those excuses and just figure out, hey, 
I just got to do my best, whatever that is. If you enjoy this show, I'd love you to share it with your friends. Our goal is very simple here at the Brian Buffini Show, and it's to influence as many people as we can in a positive way. There's a good life waiting for you. So as I finish today, I'm going to leave you with a little blessing that my grandfather always said. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time.